Hello and welcome to The Popular Show, a popular weekly live stream and podcast about populism, politics and pop culture. I'm James Smith and I'm very happy to welcome you to this special edition where you're going to hear two interviews dealing with crucial political issues of the moment. Uh, this was too much for the uh, regular weekly show. First, you're going to hear me interviewing Joe Guinan, who uh, is a brilliant economist and advisor to Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, as well as having been instrumental in the radical um, democratic economic experiments conducted in Cleveland, Ohio and Preston, Lancashire. We met up with Joe to talk about the UK's Brexit deal, how the left relates to Brexit, how the Labour Party relates to Brexit, uh, and also um, how to learn the lessons of the economic potential that leaving the European Union leaves open for a future left government. In the second interview, you're going to hear from Alfie, and he's talking to Renata Avila, who uh, is an outstanding uh, scholar and activist and also has been a, a lawyer for WikiLeaks. Alfie spoke to her about the Julian Assange extradition hearing uh, and about the case more generally um, and yeah it's a it, it's a great interview. Uh, we want to thank our patrons, we want to thank uh, those of you who have liked and subscribed on YouTube, all of this is really helpful in enabling us to continue to produce this um, this political content and uh, and cultural commentary. Um, if you haven't already and if you've been enjoying the show, uh, we hope you'll consider going to uh, patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and giving us a few quid um, a month. joined by Joe Guinan, uh, the Vice President of the US think tank, the Democracy Collaborative, uh, and author of Community Wealth Building with Martin O'Neill and People Get Ready uh, with Christine Berry. Joe, how are you? Pretty well, all things considered, James. Really good to be with you. And you're joining us from uh, sunny Yorkshire, I gather. Very sunny Yorkshire at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I escaped uh, Trump's Washington DC, never to have to go back. Uh, thankfully, um, you, your your work is is very transatlantic. Uh, can, can you explain a bit what your sort of shape of your activities has been over the past few years? Yeah, definitely. So um, I work for the Democracy Collaborative. We're a think do tank, really working on building community wealth building and the democratic economy from the ground up. We've been primarily working in the United States for um, for the last two decades. Uh, our flagship work has really been in Cleveland, Ohio, where we helped develop the Evergreen Cooperatives and a, a model of bottom-up local economic development. But in the last couple of years, um, up to and including COVID, I've been spending quite a lot of time uh, back here in the UK, um, uh, in particular trying to take advantage of the opportunity around Corbynism uh, to really develop a, a, a robust uh, left economic policy program um, and uh, and then sort of looking at the wreckage that's been left behind uh, 
by uh, the 2019 election and the Brexit debacle and looking at how we respond to COVID and build a new economy that is inclusive, um, sustainable, democratic, participatory and equal. You were in the minority of people on the left who, even before the 2016 referendum on Brexit, uh, were speaking of its opportunities. Uh, a lot of people on the left uh, continued even after the referendum, insisting that another Europe is possible. Others gradually, uh, some too gradually, came to the view that uh, Brexit needed to be accepted as a kind of political necessity. But you saw it uh, as substantively rather than strategically something that the left should be engaged in. Um, why did you think that? And do you think that still? I absolutely think that still. Um, and it was a very uh, tiny minoritarian view in the run-up to the referendum. Um, and indeed, uh, it was very difficult at times to even get a hearing for what came to be known as Lexit. Um, but my position uh, really was developed. And, you know, by the way, I, I lived in Brussels for, for three years and I've seen the European Union and its operations up close and have been thinking about these things for, for, for many years. Um, my, my position was basically that we were running up against the outer limits of neoliberalism. And we really saw that explode with the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And what that has ushered in is an anti-systemic moment where the limits of that previous model, which is dying and continues to be dying all around us, um, was really prompting political uh, sort of awakenings and uh, insurgencies uh, around the world. And we sort of saw this in many different forms in many different places. And for me, uh, the opportunity um, of this was to really look at the architecture that had been created around us uh, with the European Union um, with the single market, with um, the sort of neoliberal constitutionalized economic model um, that is at the heart of that project um, in some ways from the very beginning, but certainly um, since the 1987 Single European Act. And to begin to unwind that, we are not going to achieve our economic objectives without, in some senses, a rupture with the structures and the institutions and the economic regimes that have been put in place around us for 40 years. And the neo, uh, sort of neoliberal enforcement mechanism of the European Union, we've seen it operation um, through the Eurozone, we've seen it um, in the punishment of Greece. And there was an opportunity um, for us uh, with the referendum um, to, to really begin to uh, think about what a post-neoliberal political economy would look like that broke with nostrums of free trade, um, with the free movement of, of capital in particular, um, but also to some extent goods and services, and began to rebuild um, a, a nationally based economy. And I think, frankly, there's no basis on which to build that isn't local and national. We, we, there's the idea of of a sort of global revolution is so distant and so impossible given the time frame of, of climate change and other things that the only op option for us, I think, is to, to is someone has to go first. And we had the opportunity as the you know seventh largest economy um, in the world to to be a really significant breach um, in, in that model and the creation of something different. And unfortunately, uh, has been squandered so far, although it's not all over. Maybe we can talk about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let's talk a, a little bit more closely about um, your idea of a post-neoliberal national economy, um, because uh, for all the 
fun that uh, Remainers have had, like saying, "How how's Lexit going?" or treating Lexit as a as a kind of object of uh, of, of ridicule. I mean, as as, as you said, it's been, it it continues to be hard to get a hearing for these ideas. Actually, um, across your writings, there is a far fuller account of what an economy um, after Brexit could look like, far fuller than anything any Remainer has come up with, and actually far fuller than anything anyone on the right has been willing to admit to. Could you describe uh, in a bit more detail what you mean by economic democracy and how you see that uh, as fitting in with the, the rupture that, that a break from the EU would represent? Absolutely. I mean, I think it begins from an insight that we have um, we've been engaged in a centuries-long struggle for political democracy and for the rights of the citizen in the political realm. And yet um, the, the, the horizon for the left has to take that democracy um, into the other major realm, which is the realm of the economic, where we still operate in what is essentially um, feudal and authoritarian structures of ownership and control in the private sector, and uh, unfortunately also in the public sector in, uh, in, in the history of social democracy and of actually existing public sector institutions. And so where we've been coming from is the notion that we need to build empowered citizens at work as well as in politics as the basis um, for true democracy. And that includes uh, a, a sort of pluralism of economic forms. Um, and so we see, instead of the, the dominance of the large multinational, private, um, publicly traded corporation as the central institution of corporate capitalism as we know it, um, a, a plethora of forms, whether they're worker cooperatives, whether they're community ownership models like land trusts, whether it's um, public enterprise itself, but in a democratized form at local and regional levels, um, or indeed whether it's um, large scale ownership over uh, vast uh, amounts of capital through sovereign wealth funds and, and other models. And you can go sort of all the way um, from the, the, you know, on the ground local ownership of small enterprises all the way up to uh, very large scale uh, public ownership and control over capital and begin to, to, to see the contours of a very different functioning economy. And the key thing here, the key insight for the left is that we've been struggling in many ways um, with a, a model that's really about redistribution, which allows the capitalist economy um, to run and operate and produce um, anti-social, anti-environmental outcomes, and then struggling to correct those through uh, redistributive taxation, through regulation, through trying to hem in and control the power and the operations of the normal functioning of that economy. What we say is we should be doing something very different. We should be restructuring that economy at its very core so that those institutions and relationships in and of themselves produce the outcomes that we are looking for in terms of greater equality, ecological sustainability, local democratic accountability and control, and so on and so forth. And so there's actually an enormous amount of work that's been done looking at how this economy isn't just a pipe dream, but actually already exists in, uh, in examples in community after community across this country and all around the world. And what we now need to do is to knit those together into a comprehensive vision of, of, a, of a viable, practical, really actually already existing economy that can deliver um, the kind of lives and livelihoods and uh, an economy that we all want to see on the left. Yeah, one of the most striking uh, memorable uh, ideas I remember reading from you was um, that uh, if, if Cleveland uh, and, uh, and Preston in the UK 
UK have shown that uh, actually local government still has a great deal of spending power and therefore still has a great deal of um, leverage when it comes to incentivizing certain kinds of uh, business activity and ownership within local areas. Um, in, in Preston, for instance, um, uh, it, it, it's possible for um, local government to prioritize contracts to local, locally owned companies that have um, good green credentials, pay a living wage, have um, cooperative elements and so on. Uh, you argued that um, an entity like the NHS in Britain could be run on, on similar lines uh, and could, could actually, without changing an enormous amount about current uh, uh, structures and organisations of the economy, could actually have a pretty transformative effect. There was something of that reflected in um, a document that came out in the during the 2017 election called Alternative Models of Ownership. Uh, did you feel that you had the ear of the Labour leadership over the course of the Corbyn years? Uh, to what extent was that the case? Well, it was the case um, and it was extraordinarily um, exciting and also placed a huge amount of responsibility, I think, on the shoulders of a, you know, a now continuing to be growing um, group of thinkers and policy innovators, um, many of whom I'm pleased to call friends, that were really at the heart of building out um, Corbynomics. Um, you're exactly right in pointing to, to Cleveland and Preston as important progenitors. We've shown already and been able to deliver real results on the ground in both those instances to sh that show that these models are not just pipe dreams of the left, but real practical responses to crisis, austerity, and to a, a shrinking budget environment in uh, in both those instances. So then uh, it was very exciting to see Corbyn and also John McDonnell sort of take up the Preston model and really project that outwards as something that more and more um, needs to be the reality of local government. Um, Labour is already in government in many parts of the country. Of course, this is perhaps the most centralised country in Western Europe and the powers at the local level aren't always what we would want them to be. But even within the existing constraints and limitations um, of local government in the UK. The, what, what Matthew Brown and others have shown um, in Preston and increasingly elsewhere around the country um, is that there's a lot more that can be done already with the existing purchasing power and the existing legal frameworks. What I was saying is with, with regard to Brexit was that we would actually at some point run up against the limits of what was possible under European law with regard to procurement, with regard to public ownership, with regard to state aid, um, and that we, if we're really going to respond to the climate change transition that we need, we're going to have to do this on a much larger scale, much more in a much more widespread basis, and that this would take us crashing into the limits of what was permissible under um, EU law. I think um, that has actually been vindicated by the fact that in response to coronavirus, the European Union has had to largely suspend its state aid regime, which I think makes the case that myself and Thomas Hanna and others were making about procurement that was denied by large sections of the left. But I think it's been shown that if you can't even respond to COVID um, uh, under the existing state aid regime, how was there going to be any hope of bringing about the green transition that we need? But anyway, all of that um, aside, there was a, a tremendous opportunity around Corbyn and McDonald to really build out uh, what those principles meant when you look at the local level operations of community wealth building and think about what um, a wholesale um, transformation of the British economy would be. 
not all of this work was ours, although we were very heavily involved in a lot of the development of the thinking around, for example, um, the banking work that uh, Laurie McFarlane and Christine Berry did um, for the Labour Party, um, including postal banking, but also regional um, uh, investment banks that would have been part of an industrial strategy. Um, there was a lot of work that we still wanted to do that got cut off by the, the sort of uh, by the end of, uh, of of that political project in the 2019 election, uh, but a lot of it is uh, remains and is now the sort of inheritance of of a, you know of the left in in the UK to push forward. It's the only game in town when it comes to actually building an alternative to what we've got today. Um, and inc increasingly, we're seeing bastardized versions of it being stolen by Boris Johnson. Um, and by Rishi Sunak, um, and, uh, and and the astonishing silence of the current Labour leadership as that is taking place. But I'm happy to talk more about the detail of that programme or take this in whatever direction you want. Um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly like to come back to that. Um, but let, let me just ask something about the broad culture of the left before moving on in, in that direction. Um, it's a common reading that uh, the, the broad left in the UK um, didn't adequately grasp that if they were to have policies like you're describing, that they policies that they supported, they needed to accept Brexit, and that that was because the left is too dominated by um, educated middle class people who couldn't culturally understand these crucial working class and parochial lower middle class uh, uh, Brexit constituencies. Um, I'd suggest that it's possible that the problem runs a little bit deeper um, into how the policies themselves were prioritised. We saw in 2019 grassroots campaigns for free movement, for uh, climate change, uh, for the abolition of private schools. But where was the campaign, the grassroots campaign for economic democracy? Where was the grassroots kind of pressure for the kind of thing that you're describing. I, I spoke at a lot of uh, CLPs, uh, local uh, uh, labour groups, uh, uh, momentum meetings, and it seemed like I had to explain alternative models of ownership from scratch every time. Um, this summer, parts of the UK left, at least online, seem to respond to scenes of looting in the US by endorsing the American anarchist idea that uh, small business owners are all petty bourgeois fascists anyway and kind of deserve it. So I wonder if um, uh, the failure of the UK left on Brexit uh, flowed into some other misjudged priorities. Um, you, were, you were pushing alternative models and pushing this idea of uh, economic democracy. But was there a sense in which the, the, the kind of activists on the left are quite removed from the kinds of local uh, business, local um, uh, kinds of ownership that you were arguing about. And, and so may, maybe there was a kind of problem of the grassroots not clicking, not only with Brexit, but with the actual ideas that uh, uh, the, the actual economic policies themselves. That's really important, I think. And two things are intersecting there, at least. One is the sort of paradox of Corbynism, whereby this opportunity fell into our lap um, as a series of accidents. A butterfly flapped its wings, in a sense. Eric Joyce had one too many pints in the 
House of Commons bar hit a Conservative MP. There was the, re the selection battle then that took place over Falkirk, the Milland changes to the rules that opened the door to Corbyn. And what we then got was the leadership fell into our lap and the opportunity to develop a radical policy program um, was there. But it wasn't as the result of decades of hard work and organizing and building power. And in a way, we were in a position where we had to reverse engineer a movement. And what was patently clear to me, and I heard this out of uh, Lotto, a lot of the people that were right in the center of, of developing Corbynomics, was that um, it was really unfortunate that there wasn't um, a much greater effort around political education in the party and among grassroots members um, about the nature of the policy program that was being developed so that they could really understand it and own it and indeed contribute to it and improve it and sell it on the doorstep. It was all the, the, the platform that we stood on was almost entirely missing from the 2019 general election, um, which was an absolute travesty. Uh, in some ways, maybe it gives us another chance to have a run at it under a different banner. And that's, that's a possibility for the future. The other thing that's intersecting with this, though, and this, I think, speaks to what you're talking about in terms of of misdirections and, and misunderstandings is I think it's it's sometimes uh, not fully appreciated the extent to which 40 years of neoliberalism have permeated not just society and our institutions, but also our thinking and indeed the left itself. And, um, and we see this in forms such as the sort of hyper individualism and competitiveness of celebrity culture on the left and the way in which our, our media sometimes works, but we also see it in our economics. And it's been pretty astonishing to me to look at the Brexit debate and to look at some of the debates that have been taking place ever since and see the extent to which almost wholesale neoclassical and neoliberal economics have been swallowed by the left, such that um, the arguments were using sort of neoclassical trade models um, around around Brexit as if these represented reality rather than the abstractions of a mathematized economics that have no bearing to you know the real economy in which we live and work, as if... Uh, it was important to protect the flows of international trade and finance as if the financialized economy is what we want to preserve when we're really thinking about how to deliver for workers and communities and, and the environment rather than our direct opponent and enemy in a way that needed to be fought out. And, and within this then has been subsumed notions of national interest in trade policy and overall, you know, the use of GDP, which people ought to really understand by now is an extremely flawed measure and indicator. And so as we've internalized, you know, this absence of our own political economy and our own economics has led us into some very difficult relationships to what should be our political base. The other thing that's happened is that as the economy has changed and we've seen the decline of manufacturing and of an industrial working class, which is a long, long story in this country and, and elsewhere, um, it's going to be necessary to construct a new economic basis for our politics. And that economic basis, I argue, and my colleagues argue, is, is to be found in this emerging new range of institutions. It used to be, again, it was a redistributed model that, that you, you'd let capitalism do its thing, you'd hem it in, you'd have countervailing power, power from trade unions trying to check the power of capital, and then you'd redistribute afterwards through policy and try and constrain. And what that worked for a certain period in the post-war period for very specific reasons, um, and then has fallen apart um, since the 70s and the 80s. And what we really need to do now is construct an alternative place to stand economically for our politics that allows us to go back to, and some of these models will intersect in a really happy way for our 
friends that are anarchist inclined. A lot of them are about cooperatives, about decentralization, about localization, about bringing power down to ordinary people as close as possible um, to the ground. I argue that that's not enough, though, um, that we also need scale and verticality in the economy. And that's why we still need public ownership, but in some instances, national public ownership. And that means state power. And one of the interesting things with Corbynism is that we, we managed to hold in tension the sort of horizontalism of the um, of the sort of political movements that had fed into its you know its birth in some ways um, with um, an, an, an ability to also think vertically about what needed to happen in, in in terms of the economy overall I think in in the post Corbyn period that's sort of fracturing and people are going their own way um, and so we're going to have to have some another coming together in some form um, of that policy agenda with a politics that actually understands um, working people and the realities on the ground, and the you know the fact that we're going to have some strange bedfellows um, in in creating this next economy, including small business owners, which mm-hmm. are not always, as you said, thought of as being um, on the left. One thing uh, people might want to consider is um, if you don't like small business and you just want a straight fight with um, with Walmart and Amazon and others. That's the direction we're going in at the moment. There's actually a massacre of local and small business that's taking place as a result of the COVID pandemic and a, 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 a potential for an Amazon recovery and a huge concentration of, uh, of of corporate ownership and control of the economy afterwards. And, you know, good luck if you think then all we need to do is democratize that. I would argue that, it's, that, that that's actually a dangerous move that takes us a lot further away from where we want to be rather than starting with locally privately owned economies and figuring out how we democratize them and, and build build public policy around them and in some senses take them over and control them collectively um, as the basis of what what we what comes next yeah absolutely I, I mean I would have thought that even uh, even politically um, the massacre of the high streets uh, under lockdown should should present uh, the opportunity for well, some floating loyalties at, at the very least. Um, one last political question before um, asking you a little more about, about policy. This is from uh, one of our uh, fr- friend of the show, Conrad Tickle, um, who, um, who asked us this when, when I said that you were coming on. Um, a story we on the materialist left have told ourselves is that Corbyn and the leader's office had uh, it right on Brexit, and and we were we failed because of um, sabotage or misreading of the situation by uh, John McDonnell, by Keir Starmer, uh, and others who dragged us towards this messy uh, compromised Brexit position. Um, but um, last week or a couple of weeks ago, Keir Starmer, the face of um, the People's Vote within Labour, whipped MPs to support Boris Johnson's. Uh, uh, Brexit deal and Jeremy Corbyn um, voted against it. Uh, Conran asks, does Corbyn voting against uh, the deal past events of last five years in a different light, uh, i.e. the left can no longer pretend it was all people's vote sabotage? Well, things are rarely just one thing. Um, and I think the um, the sort of the labor leaks document, the increasing, you know, the increasingly evident sort of post-election behavior of the people's vote operators and the way in which that was largely an AstroTurf campaign funded by big money, um, including big money in the city, 
um, and that has utterly melted away without achieving any of its objectives or its stated objectives, but certainly did achieve maybe one of its unstated objectives, which was to was to wreck um, the possibilities of a radical Corbyn government. That's part of the picture. That's clearly what Peter Mandelson and other people were up to um, with that. And I think there still needs to be a true reckoning over that and a reckoning with Keir Starmer, because we actually see, even though he has flipped into adopting the position that we should have had and that wouldn't have led to, I, I would argue, to the political massacre that we suffered in, in 2019. He was so central, so instrumental to um, to Im imposing that disastrous um, second referendum uh, policy upon us. And uh, for what? We now see that he's willing to jettison it and to accept finally, uh, when it's too late for, for us, uh, maybe not for him, um, the uh, the correct sort of position of, of respecting democracy and going with the result. But what he's what he's using it for is almost nothing, as far as I can see. It's a it's a sort of uh, it's not even a, a fully fledged um, sort of Blairism that at least had the confidence of its own convictions and a sense of the future and was at a moment where um, you know the logic um, of of that political position. Uh, could at least be understood, if not agreed with. At the moment, we're on a, a, a road to nowhere, dawdling along in the wake of, um, of of the disaster of Johnsonism without offering any alternative whatsoever. But I think it's a good question about what else was going on. And I do think this takes us back to, um, to some of the sort of deeper failures um, ideologically of the left ourselves, um, including our relationship um, to, to leadership. Um, we, you know, we fell into expecting Corbyn and McDonald to deliver from on high, and it's understandable why we had to form a Praetorian Guard to defend Corbyn against repeated coups and sabotage attempts. Uh, momentum largely operated as that Praetorian Guard, but that's that meant that we didn't turn outwards when we had the opportunity to do that in 2017 and really begin to engage with with the communities that um, that needed to hear from us, not just in the run up to an election, but every week, every month um, in, in the years um, you know, before an election to really begin that conversation and democratize the understanding of that program and what it was about. There's also some, you know, some personal reflection I would imagine that will be taking place on the part of people like John McDonnell. And you know, I, I'm of the Tony Benn school of not wanting to personalize and to keep things um, political. I do wonder, I mean, John McDonnell, it was a privilege to work with him and his team um, and to see what I think is one of the, you know, the giant uh, policy and political minds of the left in the last couple of decades when it came to seeing what that vision for the alternative economy should look like. I do think at the same time um, that, um, that he had some limitations when it came to strategy. Sometimes there was a sense that it was all tactics and no strategy there. Um, and, um, and I'm, you know, his immediate reaction to the election loss was that he owned it. And I think that's true in some ways. Um, I also think, I think if we are to come back together in the way we've been talking about um, in, in the last hour, part of that um, coming back together of the policy agenda and of the politics that needs to you know, happen for it to be different next time around is really understanding the mistakes that were made. And I think John could play a really important role in that were he to choose to. I think it will be very painful because uh, I do think he was, it's one thing for Starmer to have led us disastrously in the direction of the second referendum, but it was pivotal that, um, that John McDonnell went along with that at the end of the day. Um, and I think that will be seen as a Waterloo moment for 
uh, what really should be called McDonaldomics um, rather than Corbynomics in, in some ways, since John was so much at the center of that. You know, we all make mistakes um, and I can only imagine the pressure and the difficulty and the calculations, but I do think missing from that calculus was what we really needed to do on the ground. And that's maybe takes us to a sort of more forward looking position of like political education. You know, the, the fact that the Labour Party membership was overwhelmingly in support of that direction of travel, which proved so disastrous, shows that as members, and as a movement, we were not in touch with the communities and constituencies that we needed um, to persuade in order to win. And that breach needs to be healed. I think the trade unions are going to be very important as part of that. But also, frankly, we're going to have to go really back to basics and to, in some ways, begin to reconstruct the, the sense of an alternative economics that doesn't just swallow whole um, free trade and um, globalization and all the things that kind of fed into us getting... Um, making the wrong calculus and making the wrong call on the economics of Brexit and what it really meant and offered. So last question, could you um, just give us a kind of bite-sized sense of what the policies that are, what are the policies that are exciting you at the moment? What are the policies that we should be talking about now we actually have the uh, the Brexit deal? Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, how, what, what concrete, um, idea should we be using as a kind of um put, to put at the forefront of this argument so absolutely i mean i think to give you the sort of broad architecture we've already talked about the the need to intervene and restructure the economy at its very heart so that it operates in the way we want to see it rather than having to try and correct it after the fact through redistribution there was a very ugly word for this in the Miliband era which was pre-distribution uh, which was a sort of foreshadowing of, uh, of of Corbynomics in some ways but I think what what you're getting out there is really looking at the fundamental core of the economy and how it might operate differently so instead of the way that um, our current institutions are configured and the economy is currently run not by accident by design to actually concentrate wealth and funnel it upwards in fewer and fewer hands what we want to see instead is a broad dispersal of ownership in the economy and the kind of models that we've been talking about and you know again instead of this sort of notion of a of a frictionless um, single market which is a very Hayekian concept actually at the heart of the European Union instead of this notion of continental and global economic integration in fact we want to see the, the reverse of that the sort of rooted participatory uh, democratic economy that's under local ownership uh, and control and again, at the center of that, instead of extractive multinational corporations, what we want to see is things like worker or community ownership of firms and enterprises. Instead of privatization, we want to see new forms of public and collective ownership, um, and particularly democratic ownership. Instead of austerity and of the, the, the private credit creation that we see in, in the private banking system, we want to see essentially the unleashing of the potential power of public banks, of, of public investment, and of a, a post-scarcity approach to money, which I think has been underscored by what central banks have been able to do in relation to coronavirus. And so on and on, we're, we're seeing the emergence of a, of a new economic paradigm. And so in, in regard to Brexit in particular, um, there are three areas um, that, um, that are really fruitful, that are explicitly difficult and in some ways prohibited. Um, and this has been a big argument under um, under European law. Um, it's it's always a spectrum, right? Um, and the European Union itself is very large and contains multitudes and isn't just one thing. But by and large, at the heart of that um, of that economic model um, is a prioritization of markets, of private ownership, 
and functionally a ratchet effect that allows you to move in one direction and not in others. Um, and so we were told, for example, oh, you could do whatever you want with public ownership because look at the public ownership that exists um, in other European countries. Well, actually, the problem is you're allowed to move in one direction and one direction only. When you've introduced markets to a sector in the European Union, you're not allowed to demarketize. And this was one of the big issues with railways um, and rail privatization. The problem for us was that we were always an outlier on privatization. 40% of the value of all assets privatized across the OECD uh, between 1980 and 1996 occurred in the UK. That's an astonishing economic um, sort of transfer uh, from public to private. We've only seen that in circumstances like Chile under Pinochet or the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, but this happened in sort of peacetime in the regular functioning of the UK economy. What we saw uh, with the Corbyn program was uh, an attempt to, to really bring large chunks of, uh, of the economy back under public ownership that would have been quite difficult under uh, European law because of that ratchet effect, because you're only allowed to move in one direction and not the other. And so I think um, a new era of public ownership, it might be forced upon us by accident, actually, since most of the economy is relying on being propped up at the moment. But of course, Johnson's going to do it in a way that um, that benefits uh, the interests of, uh, of that he represents and that leaves them with the option of, of reprivatization and of going back to as much of the status quo ante as they possibly can. We need to be making an argument for if we're bailing out companies at the moment, we're actually taking equity stakes and we're thinking about how we use public ownership um, to, to change behavior in regard to climate change and emissions and, and investment and sort of relocalization. Of, uh, of supply chains. You know, one thing that Corona uh, has pointed out is we're, we're vulnerable to these extremely uh, extended and fragile global supply chains on things like personal protective equipment. And much more of that needs to be onshored and brought back. And that gives us an opportunity to create new manufacturing in, in the UK. And that brings us to the second big area, which is state aid. And I think we already talked about this. Um, you know, there was an argument that you could do what you wanted with state aid, that we weren't using all the headroom that we already had under European law. That was certainly the case for the UK. We always had a, a very strict interpretation of the sort of most neoliberal version of what European law meant. Germany and France have used state aid to, um, to greater effect, but there were limits, real limits. And we saw this in places like Italy where they tried to uh, bring about through the Marcora law, um, a conversion to worker ownership of, businesses that would otherwise being shut and, uh, and that law was struck down by the European Commission uh, and was only reinstated at a quarter of its previous value. And so there were all these limits under state aid. Um, and again, uh, the fact that the EU itself has had to largely suspend its state aid regime in response to the corona crisis underscores the argument that we uh, were making from a Lexit point of view, that, that, that we need to unleash ourselves from many of these EU state aid constraints. And frankly, uh, WTO rules are better uh, than the EU in this regard and, and give us more more uh, room for maneuver. I actually think we, we need to be interrogating our relationship to the WTO and to the rest of the global architecture as well. But, you know, pick your battles one at a time, right? Uh, the last area is really takes us back to Preston and Cleveland. That's about procurement. You know, we, we already, as a public, as a government, spend an, an extraordinary amount of money. And the NHS was the example that you gave. Think about the NHS potentially being the backbone of a sort of industrial and services strategy and in, in which instead of procuring from large multinational pharmaceutical companies, we're actually creating 
community worker co-ops, public enterprises that can manufacture generic drugs and, uh, you know, a fraction of the price and, uh, and, the, and themselves can be benefit from what is overwhelmingly a public investment in R&D that underpins many of the medical technological breakthroughs that we see. You know, imagine um, sort of uh, local government redirecting in the way that Preston has already shown the way so much of its spending locally so that we can revitalize local small businesses, including um, women and minority owned businesses, but all the way through to, to co-ops um, and indeed to publicly owned, municipally owned um, enterprises that, that allow you to start to create circular local economies with multipliers in which, you know, if you, if you buy from a local business, uh, that pound then passes through uh, the local economy something like eight times more than if you, if you buy from Amazon and immediately that pound um, goes, you know, not just out of your community, but often out of the country without even paying any tax on the way out. Um, and so, you know, the use of procurement where there are um, there are limits to what you can do under European law. Um, the, the fact that the Germans have been more successful in having much more of their procurement done domestically um, uh, by um, by German companies is partly a function of language and of accessibility uh, there. Um, this country is deliberately um, outsourced and uh, deliberately um, sort of contracted from, you know, under crony capitalist models from big, big contractors and big multinationals that are friendly with the Conservative Party. And we need to be thinking about how we use the money that we've already got, that's our money, to do double and even triple duty um, locally. So a new era of public ownership, using state aid as part of an industrial strategy to rebuild the economy after COVID and to start facing the challenges of the, uh, of the green transition that we need, and a whole new different recirculatory local economy based on public procurement and the footprint that we've already got as a very large share still today of our local economies that are in the public sector and putting that to work for public purposes. These are all possible under Brexit. Um, they, some of them in, in limited fashion may have been um, possible uh, under European law, but the whole point was that this is where the, we go back to your very opening remarks. It's not just the substantive possibility of Brexit that was important. It's the strategic and political dimension of that. And what we did as the left was set ourselves against one of the biggest democratic uprisings and protests that's happened in this country's history. And boy, did we get told <laughs> what the result of that was going to be in 2019. We're not dead yet, though, and there's a chance to rebuild. Um, Lexit is pretty much the last thing standing if you actually don't want the Johnsonomics that we've got at the moment. Um, so let's, you know, let bygones be bygones, learn the lessons, I think, of, uh, of the last couple of years at leisure. But in the meantime, there's some real opportunities out there and we should be going after them and creating the vision of the new economy that already exists and that can be spread much more far and wide. So I'm a relentless optimist. It's uh, as D. Ward Huck says, it's far too late and things are far too bad for pessimism. So uh, let's get to it. It's the work of 2021 and beyond. How's Lexit going? Extremely well. Thank you for your time, <laughs> Joe Guinan. Thank you. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to this segment of The Popular Show. Um, I'm Alfie, one of the many hosts of the show. Most of you know me. Uh, and really pleased to be joined by Renata Avia Pinto, uh, who's a lawyer and activist um, who works on technology and intellectual property rights. And she's a spokesperson and part of the legal team that's uh, been defending Julian Assange and, and WikiLeaks over the 
past many years. Um, so we're kind of here today to respond to the breaking news really this week or today, just hours ago, um, that Julian Assange, the British courts have decided that Julian Assange can't be extradited to the US, um, primarily, I think, on medical grounds. They'll perhaps get into that. Of course, most of us, most of listeners will, will know that we're, we've been supporters of Assange historically and that this is a big moment for the left. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us, Renata. And could you first of all sort of tell us what's what's happened today and what do you think it means? Well, I, I want to share with the audience the experience of uh, watching remotely, you know, like because we cannot be there because of the virus and so on. Remotely, it was very tragic because one by one by one, uh, the judge dismissed all the defense arguments, saying that no, his journalistic activity shouldn't be protected, that no, that all the things that he did uh, were not protected and were not politically uh, motivated, so it, he shouldn't deserve protections. And we, like, at some point, you know, like it was, it was like she was. Uh, copy pasting all the arguments of the prosecution and repeating uh, them and we were like really worried and disappointed and just hearing all the, the words that we expected and the last the last argument the very last argument was the favorable one and it restored a little bit the hope uh, the minimum hope of on humanity and humanity standards that our legal systems should guarantee inside my heart because they said basically basically as you all know because it's everywhere now it was on humanitarian grounds it was on a suicide risk on a yeah. clinical condition that he was uh, that the extradition was rejected so uh, the fight is still there you know the elephant in the room is still there but the most important thing is that the decision today might contribute to save his life because we don't want martyrs we want julian alive and well yeah i mean that's fascinating to hear how, how um how it came to you as you were watching it because obviously i was kind of just sort of checking the news this morning knew that the, this would happen today so and so to us it, it came the other way around really first i saw the tweet from wikileaks saying the breaking news that uh, he'd be staying and you just feel very excited and happy uh, obviously my first thought that a life has been saved here uh, and that you know this is a life at risk and and so that's kind of relief there and then of course I think you know perhaps that I'm hope you're hopeful that uh, if this this is a ruling that's been made then it could save many lives further down the line but then when I started looking at the the as the news article started emerging as you say in fact you start seeing that actually this hasn't really been a clear-cut case of um, the legal system over here in, in the UK where I am you know supporting and protecting uh, the important work that WikiLeaks and Assange have done at all—it's been—it uh, was, as you say, it's, it's it's basically suicide risk and and medical grounds. So it's a mixture, is it, of sort of relief uh, that you know the worst thing hasn't happened, uh, but perhaps it, should that do we need to make sure we we qualify that and and think about them? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of work still to be done. Do you think before uh, we we this is not as positive a ruling as perhaps it first seemed? Is that is that what you say? That's precisely what I'm seeing. Like, and and it doesn't it it, it doesn't need to be seen uh, in a context. And the context is ten years of lawfare, ten years of using process to punish a journalist in the heart of Europe. I mean, uh, it, that's the most important thing to remember for the audience. That uh, 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 starting from legal claims that were not sustained in Sweden. And going through years and years and years of surveillance, 
harassment, uh, uh, mistreatment by courts, mistreatment by the press, um, uh, activists being too shy to support him openly until now. And I think that the, the, it was the right to, thing to do, what the judge did to, today. But it was also hard evidence, you know, like a ruling, uh, a, a ruling uh, against Julian will put blood on her hands, basically, because she has hard evidence at her table, at her desk, hard evidence of all the physical and all the psychological damage that Julian has gone through. So, so uh, ignoring it, it would it would have had uh, terrible consequences in history, and um, it was like the only thing to demand right now. And when what Wednesday is the big day? Wednesday morning is an urgent humanitarian release from prison. But we know, uh, as lawyers of Julian, that you know, like uh, things always work weirdly in his case. It's nothing. Uh, but you cannot predict what, what is going to, to happen. And so I, my hope uh, for Wednesday is that he gets fair bail conditions, not, not a crazy sum of money for someone who couldn't work for so long, that, he, that the conditions of his bail are reasonable, are sensible, and that he can find the privacy and the, and the calm he needs to recover. So the, the current situation is that the British lawyers are putting together the bail application, which goes yes. in. When, when does that happen today? Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Wednesday. It, yes. And it, 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 it is very important that he's released from prison. I know that it will be argued that he jumped bail. And this is important to remember as well. He did not jump bail. He exercised a right to asylum. He exercised a right, a right to asylum trying to protect himself from all of this he's leaving now, which is obviously politically motivated. So that will be like the, because the system claims that he jumped bail, that would be the argument that the judge might use to keep him under custody, but that's inhuman. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think many of many of us would, would share your sort of feeling just that this has become so much, so because of the such, terrible health conditions that Julian has been put in through this process over these many years, it's really just become a humanitarian case of wanting to somebody to get relief uh, from these terrible life-threatening conditions. Um, so, you know, I wonder if hopefully one of the things, I know you, you're, you're right that um, you, you mentioned to me before, you, you don't want martyrs, you want Julian alive and well and, and working on the the projects that are important to to you and he um but um i i guess one thing that hopefully will come out of this is a, a more a growing realization uh, about what extents european governments states americans america too will go to to eliminate and dis uh, and and maltreat its enemies i suppose um because i think people still feel shocked by this kind of level of an inhumane treatments that Assange has received. So I guess is, is one good thing to come out of this, at least uh, an awareness of how bad these, these powers are at treating people as humans? Yes, and, and, and I, I think that is the, the awareness call is for journalists, really. Like, you know, like uh, now, finally, after so long, uh, many journalists are open, like mainstream media, basically, is openly advocating for Julian. But the narrative 
the like the way media can uh, destroy the life of a journalist at risk. Uh, that's the most surprising thing, you know, but because an army, you know, like uh, if you mess up with the powerful governments, okay, you know what to expect, but that people from your same profession will not be there for you to advocate for you is very sad and it's very frustrating. So I, I hope this case is an open uh, and wake up call for uh, journalists and investigative journalists and news outlets. The threat is still there. The threat is, is still there, but media can play a big role in uh, closing this case forever. And I think that that should be the petition to the upcoming uh, Harris-Biden administration. This case is not about a pardon. It's not about a rejection of extradition. Julian should be like a, his right to be free should be restored fully. And, and, and the right of journalists to publish should be restored fully. And that all will only happen when the case is closed. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's my ambition. That's my ultimate goal. The, my ultimate goal is that this case dies. The only, yeah, no. the only death we need in this case, basically. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I'm really interested in what you said there that about mainstream journalism now coming around to this position and, and taking this position of support, which whereas actually at some point in the history of this case, it was almost sort of heretical to defend Julian. So what, what do you think has caused that sort of turn of the tide in, in terms of the media's sort of mainstream media's switch to, to being in support? I mean, it is like the, the, the world changed a lot in the last 10 years, for worse, for journalists. And it's undeniable. And it's undeniable that uh, what they thought it was like pure paranoia and speculation uh, and um, exaggerations from our side, it turned into reality and it went even worse. If you think of the case of Jamal Khashoggi, for example, cut into pieces inside an embassy or the Malt Maltese journalist like uh, killed by a bomb mm. right here in Europe, you know, right here in Europe. Uh, well, and in the uh, near, uh, uh, and, and then you have, even if no longer Europe, uh, in the UK, Julian subject to these such, such, such brutal, arbitrary conditions and so unreasonable prosecution procedures and, and seeing him, you know, seeing him uh, in this uh, glass uh, box as he was a very dangerous uh, criminal uh, played a very powerful role, I would say, in journalists realizing that not uh, standing by the right to pub publish would be like a brutal, would be shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I mean, that's great. I mean, before before we before we finish, um, Renata, it'd be great to to hear a bit about your work as well. Um, I mean, you've told us what you hope to to be part of on this case, but t tell us a bit about what you've done um, for WikiLeaks and for Julian, but also some of the other stuff because I mean, I know, I know that you're part of the direct the board of directors for Creative Commons. I mean, I'm a I'm a media studies lecturer, always lecturing my students about why we need open knowledge and why we need net neutrality and creative commons and things like that. And of course, this is connected to this case and to WikiLeaks, but tell, tell oh, us a bit connected. about the work you've done for all this and, and what, how you see the, the relationship between the Assange case and, and all that stuff. You know, like I, I think that I'm still a lot of an idealist and I think that we are just in a sad uh, 
transition of adjustment kind of on, we still have unique possibilities to transform people's lives in our hands. Even having this conversation and being able to broadcast it to so many, you know, changing minds and equipping people with knowledge and critical knowledge to transform their lives is, is key. Julian thought that um, information, releasing information was enough. Uh, many of the people in Creative Commons thought that sharing was enough. It's not enough. We need to, we need to find, um, and I, I think that uh, the key ingredient in all of this is people. And that's what we are trying to do with the Progressive International, getting people together so they can be, so it's not just abstract pieces of knowledge of pieces of information thrown out there, but there's a community ready to get them and activate them and push for the changes that we need uh, in, uh, in the diverse spheres. So that's, I, I will say that that's how it, it all connects. Yeah, thank you. I mean, people should follow the Progressive International and 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 DM Twenty Five, which I'm also part of, and Renata is a <laughs> a, a, um, um, a board member for, and all these efforts to kind of democratize Europe and push for a progressive international left. Um, and it's something that we really want to do on on this show as well. It'd be lovely to have you on again in future to talk not about Assange directly, but about all your other work across international borders uh, for building a progressive left if you if you'd come back on and do that Renata it would be fascinating to hear about your, your work in that front too yes um, but thank you very much for joining us today and um, I suppose uh, a day of at least relief if not exactly celebration and we will um, you know we, we, our supporters with Julian and uh, and we'll be sort of waiting on Wednesday to hope that um, he's that our legal system is humane enough to let somebody live and recover yes <laughs> okay, Renata, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for joining us and speaking to you again. Bye. Bye bye.